Hello, I'm Sally Kornbluth, president of MIT, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to this MIT community podcast, Curiosity Unbounded. In my first few months at MIT, I've been particularly inspired by talking with members of our faculty who recently earned tenure. Like their colleagues, they are pushing the boundaries of knowledge. Their passion and brilliance, their boundless curiosity, offer a wonderful glimpse of the future of MIT. Today, I'm talking with Desiree Plata, Associate Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering. Desiree's work is focused on predicting the environmental impact of industrial processes and translating that research to real-world technologies. She describes herself as an environmental chemist. So tell me a little more about that. What led you to this work, either personally or professionally? Yeah, I guess I always loved chemistry, but before that, I was just a kid growing up in the state of Maine, and I like to describe myself as as a free-range kid. I ran around and talked to the neighbors and popped into the local businesses, and one thing I observed in my grandparents' town was that there were a whole lot of sick people, you know, not everybody, but maybe every other house. And I remember being about seven or eight years old and driving home with my mom to our apartment one day and saying, you know, it's got to be something everybody shares, the water, maybe something in the food or the air. And that was really my first environmental hypothesis. You had curiosity unbounded even when you were a child. That's right. I spent the next several decades trying to figure it out and ultimately discovered that there was something in the water where my grandmother lived. And in that time, I had earned a chemistry degree and came to MIT to do my grad work at MIT in the Woods Hole Oceanographic in environmental chemistry and chemical oceanography. You saw a pattern, you thought about it, and it took some time to get the tools to actually address the questions, but eventually you were there. That is great. As I understand it, you have two distinct areas of interest. One is getting methane out of the atmosphere to mitigate climate warming, and the other is making industrial processes more environmentally sound. Do you see these two as naturally connected? Well, I'll start by saying that when I was young and thinking about this chemical contamination that I hypothesized was there in my grandmother's neighborhood, one of the things when I finally found out there was a Superfund site there, one of the things I discovered was that it was owned by close family friends, and they were our neighbors. The decisions that they made as part of their industrial practice were just part of standard operating procedure. And that's when it kind of clicked for me that you know industry is just kind of going along, hoping to innovate, to make the world a better place. And when these environmental impacts occur, it's often because they didn't have enough information or know the right questions to ask. And I was in graduate school at the time and said, you know, I'm at one of the most innovative places on planet Earth. I want to go knock on the doors of other labs and say, what are you making and how can I help you make it better? If we all flash back to around 2008 or so, hydraulic fracturing was really taking off in this country. And there was a lot of hypotheses about the number of chemicals being used in that process. It turns out that there are many hundreds of chemicals being used in the hydraulic fracturing process. And my group has done an immense amount of work to study every groundwater we could get our hands on across the Appalachian region of the eastern United States, which is where a lot of this development took place and is still taking place. And one of the things we discovered was that some of the biggest environmental impacts are actually not from the injected chemicals, but from the released methane that's coming into the atmosphere. Methane is growing at an exorbitant rate and is responsible for about as much warming as CO2 over the next 10 years. 
And I started realizing that we as engineers and scientists would need a way to get these emissions back, to take them back from the atmosphere, if you will, to abate methane at very dilute concentrations. And that's what led to my work in methane abatement and methane mitigation. Interesting. And am I wrong about when we think about the impact of agriculture on the environment, that methane is a big piece of that as well? You are certainly not wrong there. If you look at anthropogenic emissions or human-derived emissions, more than half are associated with agricultural practices. So the cultivation of meat and dairy in particular, you know, cows and sheep are what are known as enteric methane formers. So part of their digestion process actually leads to the formation of methane. And it's estimated that about 28% of the global methane cycle is associated with enteric methane formers and our agricultural practices as humans. And there's another 18% that's associated with fossil energy extraction. That's really interesting. So thinking about your work then, I mean, particularly in agriculture, part of the equation has got to be how people live, what they eat, and, you know, production of methane as part of the sustainability of agriculture. And the other part then seems to be how you actually, if you will, mitigate what we've already bought in terms of methane in the environment. Yeah, this is a really important topic right now. Tell me a little bit about, you know, maybe in semi-lay terms about how you think about removal of methane from the environment. Yeah. Recently, over 120 countries signed something called the Global Methane Pledge, which is essentially a pledge to reduce 45 percent of methane emissions by 2030. And if you can do that, you can save about a half a degree centigrade warming by 2100. So that's a full third of the one and a half degrees that politicians speak about. Now, we can argue about whether or not that's that's really the full extent of the warming we'll see. But the point is that methane impacts near-term warming in our lifetimes. And it's one of the unique greenhouse gases that can do that. It's called a short-lived climate pollutant. So what that means is that it lives in the atmosphere for about 12 years before it's removed. That means if you take it out of the atmosphere, you're going to have a rapid reduction in the total warming of planet Earth, the total radiative forcing. And so your question more specifically was about how do we grapple with this? We've already emitted so much methane. How do we think about as technologists getting it back? It's a really hard problem, actually. So in the air in the room in front of us that we're breathing, only two of the million molecules in front of us are methane. 417 or so are CO2. So if you think direct air capture of CO2 is hard, direct air capture of methane is that much harder. The other thing that makes methane a challenge to abate is that activating the bonds in methane to promote its destruction or its removal is really, really tricky. It's one of the smallest carbon-based molecules doesn't have what we call van der Waals interactions. There's no handles to grab onto. It's not polar. That first destruction and that first CH bond is what we, as chemists, would call spin forbidden. It's, it's hard to do, and it takes a lot of energy to do that. And so one of the things we've developed in my lab is a catalyst that's based on earth-abundant materials. There are some other groups at MIT that also work on these same types of materials, and it's able to convert methane at very low levels down to the levels that we're breathing in this room right now. Oh, that's fascinating. How do you see that as being something that will move to practical application? So one of the things that we're doing to try to translate this to meaningful applications for the world is to scale the technology. 
We're fortunate to have funding from several different sources, some private philanthropy groups and the United States Department of Energy. And they're helping us over the next three years try to scale this in places where it might matter most. And perhaps a counterintuitive place is coal mines. So coal mines emit a lot of methane, and it happens to be enriched in such a way that it releases energy. And it might release enough energy to actually pay for the technology itself. Another place we're really focused on is dairy. Right. Really interesting. So you mentioned at the beginning that you were at MIT You left, you came back, and I'm just wondering, you know, I'm new to MIT, and obviously, you know, I'm just learning it, but how do you think about the MIT community or culture in a way that is particularly helpful in advancing your work? Yeah, I mean, for me, I was really excited to come back to MIT because it is such an innovative place. And so if you're someone who says, I want to change the way we invent materials and processes, it's one of the best places you could possibly be because you can kind of walk down the hall and bump into people who are making new things, new molecules, new materials, and say, how can we incorporate the environment into our decision-making process? So as engineering professors, we're guilty of teaching our students to optimize for performance and cost. And so they go out into their jobs and guess what? That's what they optimize for. (laughs) But we want to transition, and we're at a point in our understanding of the Earth system, that we could actually start to incorporate environmental objectives into that design process. So engineering professors of tomorrow should say optimize for performance and cost and the environment. And that's really what made me very excited to come back to MIT, not just the great research that's going on in in every nook and corner of the Institute, but also thinking about how we might influence engineering education so that this becomes part of the fabric of how humans invent new practices and processes. If you look back in your past, you talked about your sort of childhood in Maine and observing these patterns. You talked about your training and how you came to MIT and have really been, I think, thriving here. Was there a path not taken, a road not taken? If you hadn't become an environmental chemist, was there something else you really wanted to do? Oh, that's such a great question. (laughs) Uh, You know, I have a lot of loves. Um, I love the ocean. I love writing. I love teaching, and I'm doing that, so I'm lucky there. I also love the beer business. Uh, So my family's in the beer business in Maine, and I thought as a biochemist, I would always be able to fall back on that if I needed to. And my family's not in the beer business because we're particularly good at making beer, but because they're interested in making businesses and creating opportunities for people. And that's been an important part of our role in the state of Maine. And MIT really supports that side of my mind as well. I love the entrepreneurial ecosystem that exists here. I love that when you bump into people and you have a crazy idea, instead of giving you all the reasons it won't work, an MIT person gives you all the reasons it won't work. And then they say, And this is how we're going to make it happen. And that's really fun and exciting. And the entrepreneurship environment that exists here is really very supportive of the translation process that has to happen to get something from the lab to the global impact that we're looking for. And that supports my mission just so much. It's been a joy. That's excellent. So you didn't you weren't actually tempted to become a yeast cell biologist in the in the service of beer production. <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> but I do I joke they only call me when something goes really bad. <laughs> That's really funny. So, you know, you experienced MIT as a student, now you're experiencing it as a faculty member. What do you sort of wish there was one thing about each group that the other knew? I wish that speaking with my faculty had on that 
the students knew just how much we care about them. And I know that some of them do and really appreciate that. But when I send an email at three in the morning, I get emails back from my colleagues at three in the morning. We work around the clock and we don't do that uh, for ourselves. You know, we do that to make great sustainable systems for them and to create opportunity for them to propel themselves forward. And so to me, that's one of the common unifying features of an MIT faculty member. We care really deeply about the student experience. And as a student, I think that we're we're hungry to learn. You know, we wanted to really see the ins and outs of operation, how to run a research lab. And I think sometimes faculty try to spare their students from that. And maybe it's okay to let them know <laughs> just what's going on in all those meetings that we sit through. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I think there are definitely things you find out when you become a faculty member and you're like, oh, so this is what they were thinking. You know, with regard to the passion of the faculty about teaching, it really is remarkable here. I really think some of the strongest researchers here are so invested in teaching, and you see that throughout the community. The labor of love, for exactly. sure. Exactly. So, you know, you talked a little bit about the passion for teaching, et cetera. Were there teachers along your way that you really think impacted you and sort of changed the direction of what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I could name all of them. So, I mean, I had a kindergarten teacher who would stay after school and wait for my mom to be done work. I was raised by a single mom and her siblings, and that was amazing. I had a fourth grade teacher who helped promote me through school and taught me to love the environment. If you ask fourth graders if they saw any trash on the way to school, they'll all say no. And you take them outside and give them a trash bag to fill up and it'll be full by the end of the hour, you know. And this is something I've done with students in Cambridge to this day. And this was, you know, many years on now. So she really got me aware and thinking about environmental problems and how we might change systems. You know, I think it's really great for faculty to think about their own experiences, but also to hear people who become faculty members reflect on the great impact their own teachers had. I mean, I think the things folks are doing here are going to reverberate in their students' minds for many, many years. It also is interesting in terms of thinking about the pipeline and when you get students interested in science. You talk about your own early years of education that really ultimately had an impact. And it's funny, when I became president at MIT, I got a a note from my second grade teacher And, you know, I remembered her like it was yesterday. These are people that really had an impact. And it's great that we honor teaching here at MIT and we acknowledge that this is going to have a really big impact on our students' lives. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a privilege to teach these top talents, you know, at many schools around the country. It's just young people that have so much potential. And and I feel like when we walk into that classroom, we've got to bring inspiration with us along with the tangible practical skills. And, and it's been great to see what they become. So tell me a little bit about what you do outside of work. What are your sort of, when you ask faculty hobbies, sometimes they go, hobbies? But (laughs) there must be something uh, you spend your time on. I'm just curious. We're worried we're going to fail this part of the the Q&A. Yeah, I have four children. You don't need any hobbies I know, yeah. (laughs) But I've had a, you know, and it's been the good graces of the academic institution, I think, just for those people who are out there thinking about going into academia and say, well, it's too hard. I couldn't possibly have the work and life that I seek if I go into academia. And I don't think that's true anymore. I know there are a lot of women who paved the way for me and men, for that matter. I remember my PhD advisors being fully present for their children. And I've been very fortunate to be able to do the same thing. So I spend lots of time 
time taking care of them right now, but we love being out in nature, you know, hiking, skiing, and kayaking and enjoying what the earth gives us. It's also fun to see that aha moment in your children when they start to learn a little bit about science and they get the idea that you really can discover things by observing closely, et cetera. And, you know, I don't know if they they realize they benefit from having parents who think that way, but uh, I think that also stays with them yeah. through their lives. Yeah, my son is just waiting for the phone call to be able to be part of MIT's toy design class. Oh, that's as, fantastic. As an official evaluator, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Excellent. So in the last five years or so, we've been through the pandemic. In practical terms, how you think about your work and your life, what do you do that it has improved your life? I always hate the words of work-life balance because they're so intermeshed. But, you know, just for the broader community, how, how have you thought about that? I think that I've been thinking about my Zoom world and how I am still able to do quite a bit of talking to my colleagues and advancing the research mission and talking to my students that I wouldn't have been able to do. Even pre-pandemic, it would have been pretty hard. And so we're all really trained to interact more efficiently through these media and mechanisms. You know, I know how to give a good talk on Zoom uh, for better or worse. And so I think that that's been something that has been great. And in the context of environment, I think a lot of us, you know, and this might be cliched at this point, but realize that there are things that we don't need to get up on a plane for. And perhaps we can work on the computer and interact in that way. And so I think that that's awesome. And there's there's not much that can replace real in-person human interaction. But if it means that you can juggle a few more balls in the air and have your family feel valued and yourself feel valued while you're also valuing your work, that thing that is igniting for you, I think that that's a great outcome. No, I think that's right. Unfortunately, though, your kids may never know the meaning of a snow day. <laughs> you know, they, you got they it. may be on remote school whenever uh, we yes. would have been uh, home building snow forts. As a Mainer, I appreciate this fully and, and almost had to write a note this year. <laughs> Just let them go outside. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So as we're sort of wrapping up, just thinking about the future of climate work and coming back to the science, I think you've thought a lot about what you're doing and impact on the climate. I'm just wondering, as you look around MIT, where you think we might have some of the greatest impact. How do you think about what some of your colleagues are doing? Because I'm starting to think a lot about what MIT's real footprint in this area is going to be. The first thing I want to say is that I think for a long time, the world's been looking for a silver bullet climate solution. And that is not how we got into this problem, and it's not how we're going to get exactly. out of it. We need the thousand BBs. And fortunately at MIT, there are many thousands of minds that all have something to contribute. So I like to impose, especially on the undergraduates and the graduate researchers, our student population out there, think, how can I bring my talents to bear on this really most pressing and important problem that's facing? our world right now. So I would say just whatever your skill is and whatever your passion is, try to find a way to marry those things together and find a way to have impact. The other thing I would say is that we think really differently about problems. And that's what might be needed. You know, if you're going to break systems, you need to come at it from a different perspective or a different angle. So encouraging people to think differently as this community does so well, I think is going to be an enormous asset and bringing some solutions to the climate change challenge. Excellent. So if you look back over your career and even earlier than when you became a faculty member, what do you think the best advice is that you've ever been given? 
There's so much. I've been fortunate to have a lot of really great mentors. And what is the best piece of advice? I I think this notion of balancing work and not work. <laughs> and I've gotten two really key points of advice. One is about travel. And I think that ties into this concept of COVID and whether or not we can actually go remote for a lot of things. And it was from an MIT professor. And he said, you know, the biggest thing you can do to protect your personal life and your life with your family is to say no and travel less. You know, travel eats up time on the front and the back, and it's your family that's paying the price for that. So be really judicious about, about your choices. And that was excellent advice for me. Another female faculty member of mine said, you have to prioritize your family like they are an appointment on your calendar, <laughs> and and it's okay when you do that. And so I think those have been really helpful for me as I navigate and struggle with my own very mission-oriented self where I want to keep working and put my focus there, but know that it's okay to maybe go for a walk <laughs> and, and, and talk to real people. <laughs> go wild. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you know, this issue actually of saying no, not only to travel, but thinking about where you really place your efforts and when there's a finite amount of time. And, you know, when I think about this and advising junior faculty in terms of service, every faculty member is going to be asked way more things than they're going to want to do, yet their service to the department, service to the institute is important, not only for their advancement, but in how we create a community. So, you know, I always advise people to say yes to the things they're truly interested in and they're passionate about, and there will be enough of those things. I have a flow chart for when to say yes and when to say no. And having interest is at the top of the list and then feeling like you're going to have an impact. And that's something I think when we do this service at MIT, we really are able to have an impact. It's not just the oldest people in the room that get to drive the bus. They're really listening and want to hear that perspective from everybody. That's excellent. Well, thanks again, Desiree. I really enjoyed that conversation. And to our audience, thanks again for listening to Curiosity Unbounded. I very much hope you'll all join us again. I'm Sally Kornbluth. Stay curious.